Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. And welcome to The Thinking Practitioner, where Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. And Books of Discovery likes to say learning adventures start here, and they see that same spirit here on The Thinking Practitioner podcast and are proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners, that's you, save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. Hey, Whitney, how you doing? I'm doing very well, sir. How are you doing? It's good to see you again. We've been off on a couple of different um, interesting tangent solo things here, but it's good to be back with you again here today. Well, yeah, we've we done a couple of solo episodes, and you've been some interesting places. Oh, uh, yeah. Anything, tell us about that. Yeah, I was out of the country for a little bit, doing a five-day training down in Costa Rica with some wonderful folks down there and getting to spend some time in the in the jungle and the heat. And so it's good to be back in the dry <laughs> the dry climate again, but yeah, I had a good time down there. I had a very good time down there. Dry and high Oregon. Yes, indeed. Uh, um, sounds like a great uh, a great time. I know I've been down there to that part of the Powder Costa Rica years ago and really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. It's Glad a wonderful place. Yeah, wonderful place. So, uh, and uh, so we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago. I had a, had a thing with uh, Patty Shank. We talked about education some, and we're going to spin off in a little bit um, different place with that today, from what I understand, right? What are we talking about today? Yeah, I'm excited to share with you a, a set of obstacles, a set of things that could get in our way mm-hmm. as learners. And this is part of uh, a mastery class we teach as part of our certification. So it's just that idea that there, we have a role in learning too. And I you're, I really enjoyed your episode with Patty. Mm-hmm. Shank, it gave me tons of ideas about stuff that you and I are already doing really well and for sure stuff that ways that we can uh, bring this information to bear in an even more interesting way. Yeah. So that's just the educator side. So then today, this list is about what we can do as learners uh, to get out of our own way, basically. Yeah, which I'm eager to hear some more about those things because I'm I'm always a voracious learner myself. And so I like to, to look at some of these things and reflect on how that may be impairing my learning as well. So, yeah. Great. And I got I even have some slides I'm going to show in the video version. You know, we're posting these to YouTube now, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So I'll try to describe it to the listeners as well, but I got some video, uh, some visuals I'm going to show along with it. Let me fire up my screen share there. What do you think? Can you see my first slide? Oh, we do. I see a flame of learning here. <laughs> a flame of learning. Yeah. Well, the context there is why is learning even important? And you said you're a lifelong learner, Whitney, and I think of myself that way. I know in our profession, there's so many uh, people oriented around learning. That's people that do cross professions some and come into this field from other fields remark quite a bit about how voracious of learners the people in our profession are, how often they come to yeah. continuing trainings, or how much they're learning online, doing all the different kinds of things they do. So I, I probably don't have to make the case for learning, but that's the context to say that actually it's, you know, if we're not learning, 
like uh, this is a quote from Seneca the Younger, back in the days of the Stoics in Greece. He said, life without learning is death. Yeah. Or the other quote I've heard is, you don't, uh, how's it go? You don't grow old, you just stop learning. Yeah, and you know, I think this is this in and of itself is so important because there is a a kind of mindset that we hear sometimes. I think discussed in in phrases that people use when they say things like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to finish my education," meaning I'm going to get my degree and we'll be done. Um, oh yeah, but that um, you know the re- the real thing to remember, especially nowadays with things uh, that change so often and so fast, there is really no oh. end. There's no end to it for sure. Yeah, and then there's learning in the big sense too, which you could make the pretty strong case that what we do in our hands-on work is a kind of learning, or I help our clients' bodies learn, help them learn what different things feel like or what different movements are possible. And then maybe in terms of mechanisms, we're having a bigger effect in the learning department, even with our hands-on work, than in any other department. Yeah. One interesting argument. Yeah, for sure. But another tradition here, the Confucian tradition says, without learning, the wise become foolish. With learning, the foolish become wise. I don't know where I am on that continuum. Yeah, uh, I think of you as wise. I guess that leaves me on the other side. Uh, like, uh, I think I'm myself foolish pretty frequently too. So, yeah. All right. But that's, it's, and it's the difference between knowledge, I think, and wisdom too, that there's yeah. a certain amount of information we get. But that learning involves a whole lot more than just taking in information, say, or facts or techniques or whatever it is. Yeah, It's helpful for me to think about what we do in the context of learning traditions. Getting better at something like our work, like we do, mm-hmm. has uh, many other companions in this uh, set of traditions that emphasize learning. Certainly, academia is all about that. The uh, The accumulation and refining and building of knowledge upon previous scholars. There's certainly spiritual and religious traditions that emphasize learning, like uh, beginner's mind in the Buddhist tradition, or we just heard the quote from Confucius about uh, becoming wise. And then in the Christian tradition, there's many of them, like uh, like uh, Proverbs, the, you know, emphasizing the accumulation of uh, understanding and insight over the accumulation of gold, or Jesus comes little children. This is part of this evolution as a being mm-hmm. that I think is better than a lot of traditions. As well as scientific research is a learning tradition. Martial arts, trade, artistic apprenticeships, business is you know this emphasis on a learning organization and lots of business consulting has to do with helping businesses learn as well as prof- professional continuing education requirements in our field. Mm-hmm. Lots of uh, learning traditions that we're a part of. Yeah. There is a, an idea that uh, learning would become electronic. And I'm showing a picture to the, to the video viewers of an illustration from a French magazine about the, the way that life would be in the year 2000. This magazine was written in 1901. So 100 years in the future, in this magazine, they pictured a classroom where the professor is grinding up books in a kind of mill, and somehow it's going. The information is going to little wires and going to the students' heads through his caps and headsets. Yeah, which so you know, it's uh, to me kind of interesting when I see that particular image there, and I'm reminded of the story of the uh, the Rip Van Winkle syndrome in education. Have you heard that that metaphor? No, tell me about that. So you know, the story of Rip Van Winkle is uh, a guy who falls asleep for 
20 years or whatever it is, some period of time and wakes back up yeah. and everything has changed in his world around him. And the the metaphor in the education world is, you know, Rip Van Winkle fell asleep in the early 1900s and oh. woke up in modern day and was walking around. It's just, is completely astounded by, you know, these big things flying overhead and these vehicles zipping around and people looking at these devices in their phone. He's just like completely um, you know, astonished at all the things that are yeah. happening. And then somebody takes him into a building, into a classroom, and he says, oh, I know what this is. It's a school. It looks exactly like it did back when I was <laughs> studying. And it's, Maybe some of the schools haven't changed. That's one of those things, yeah. It hasn't really changed uh, a great deal in that period of time. Or ideas about how to get people information haven't changed. Like here, they're grinding up the books and putting them right in the student's head. That's what they pictured the future like. Yeah. And there's this idea that we can just go online and get some information, take some classes, and satisfy our requirements and be done with it. Yeah. But the the shift in perspective that might really help us to think of learning as an attitude rather than an activity. Mm -hmm. So a way to think about things more yeah. than just something we do, but a way to approach Life. It's not just taking up the picking up the book and shaking out the information into your head. It's actually shifting the way we see things. Mm -hmm. Or this one that like teachers love to quote. It's like uh, cliche. It's been quoted so much. Learning is not the filling of a pail. It's the igniting of a fire. William Yates. By the way, calling it a cliche, uh, I just realized is a, one of those obstacles to learning. That's the trivializing one. I just oh, uh -huh. trivializing. Yeah. Uh huh. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Let's go through those. Yeah. I got I got like ten or so of the kind of greatest hits, and this list comes from Julio Olaya and the Newfield Institute, mm -hmm. who I trained with for a number of years, and really has some interesting things to say about attitudes and about learning and about how we as learners. Uh, really make the difference in how we affect other people. It's basically our ability to learn ourselves to make the difference in how we catalyze learning in other people. Yeah. Um, something I see, I just wanted to comment briefly on this, something you said a moment ago, triggered yeah. a memory for me of something I had read back when I was in um, graduate school and reading something about, uh, I believe it was a, a Carl Rogers book or something that was talking uh -huh. about education. He was talking about the phrase that is used so often in education in the classrooms where we talk about covering content. And he said, you know, uh -huh. it's an interesting phrase to talk about covering it because you often end up just dumping information and really covering over the significance of that learning for people. And I thought that was an interesting kind of perspective and shift and change on the way those words are used and in, in, in looking at that. Good so, point. Yeah. Good point. You and Patty were talking about that, how it's not just about getting through it yeah. at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we talked with her about ways to really help our students as teachers retrieve it. But And so then as learners... The way that we think about it, the way we take it in, the way we relate to it will make a big difference too. And whether we're just covering it, yeah, actually shifting something that we do. Right. How we All right, let's see okay. what we got. Okay, there's a handout that goes with this. I'll put it on the show notes, just a, a list of these and a kind of a self-assessment scale. But basically, if you're listening along, you can just see which ones you recognize in yourself. They, they pretty much cover my greatest hits of my own learning obstacles. That's how I know them so well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the handout is optional. Go to our show notes and download it if you want. The first one, an inability to unlearn as an obstacle that gets in my way of learning new things. If I can't uh, learn something new, then uh, I'm not learning. Mm -hmm. And this is phrase fast past matching from Mickey Connolly, which says, 
he, he says basically we listen to a teacher or to a uh, conversation uh, companion or to a client just long enough until we know what we would say if we were in their shoes. And then at that point, we start formulating our response. So it's basically we're fast, in a really fast way, we're matching what we hear to what our past is. Mm -hmm. And then we respond. Yeah. And there's some analogy to the way we understand predictive processing in the brain now, too. Whereas the brain is basically matching our experiences all the time with what it already knows. And the only time it uses appreciable energy is when there's something that doesn't fit. Yeah. Mm hmm which is a kind of unlearning. Yeah. So if we're just matching, if we're just hearing things and going, yeah, oh, I got that. I know that technique mm -hmm. or I got that concept or yeah, we learned about the shoulder already. Then right. that's the all that I stop learning. Yeah. An interesting piece of that or an example of that, I think that just comes to mind too. We talk about, you know, learning. Let's, let's you know, sort of think of that from a clinical perspective too, about learning from our clients and what their particular, their unique personal experience about something is. And that, um, statistic that's often quoted that it, it takes the average uh, healthcare professional, or I think this was about physicians, they had done this, something like um, they interrupt their patient within the first, what was it, like 25 seconds or something like that, seconds. 18 seconds within, you know, in the, in the interview seconds. process, because you hear something you've heard before, and it's just like, okay, this is what this is. And so, like, that's a really good exactly. example of, like, we need to really unlearn and listen to what they're saying so we can learn what their unique uh, experience is. True. Mm -hmm. uh, Claude Bernard, the French psychologist, phys uh, physiologist, said it's what we think we know already that often prevents us from learning or that we're lost the instant we know what the result will be. Yeah. That's one who's the Spanish painter and sculptor. Next obstacle, the belief or the idea that I can't learn that. Mm hmm yeah. So this is like me deciding, oh, yeah, I'm not a math person or I'm yeah. not a, or whatever. I'm not a, uh, I'm not an intuitive. Yeah. You know, I learn more politically, whatever it is. Yeah. But as soon as, as soon as we have that thought, it's, it becomes a self fulfilling opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, you know, Julio Laya's point is it's always an opinion because, and not a fact because we never get to test it. Yeah. As soon as we decide it, we stop trying. Yeah. It's just, Days there, I can't learn that. Yeah, that's really true. I have had to grapple with this a lot in talking with a lot of students, to especially in the early days of our online education experiences, convincing people that they could learn valid and relevant things in an online yeah. environment. And because everybody say, "Oh no, I've I'm a hands-on learner. I have to learn this by yeah. doing things." And so there's an obstacle well, there yeah. to to recognizing there's different types of learning that are going to be done in those different environments. And a lot of people come to our field uh, with this uh, with this as a sore spot yeah. in their in their academic history, mm -hmm. really feeling like they couldn't learn, and so being attracted to something that was more hands on. Yeah, but for a lot of people, it's a real, re a real revelation or a shift to realize, wow, I can actually learn more than I thought. Yeah. Next one: cognitive blind spots. Mm -hmm. Cognitive blind spots, and you can imagine a pie chart. Uh, where everything that can be known is one slice of the pie. It's pretty small. Like everything, all knowledge anywhere in the universe, uh, known universe to you know to humans would be this slice of the pie. It's probably a pretty small slice of the pie. Yeah, especially nowadays. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then the slice that of that that I know, everything that I know is even a smaller slice. Yeah. So there's a little sliver of that. Sliver, yeah, for sure. 
So yeah, everything that can be known is one piece, a sliver, that's everything I know, which leaves like a huge bit of the pie is everything we don't even know we don't even know. Yeah. So this the cognitive blind spot says that I'm not even aware of what I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know there's some things I don't know, but I'm not even aware of a much bigger set of facts or perspectives or possibilities that aren't even on my map. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, confusion is our next one, our next obstacle. And it's uh, a feeling or a, you could say, a autonomic state that can come that we call confusion. But another interesting definition, again, from Julio Alaya, he says, maybe it's an addiction to wanting things to be clear and unambiguous all the time. Maybe what we call confusion is just a fixation on having it clear all the time or lacking tolerance for chaos and mm-hmm. uncertainty. That if we could allow things to be a little less clear, maybe we'd be less confused. Yeah. So well, a question I want to pose to you in terms of confusion here. What do you, do you think this uh, confusion, I think often may arise because of, let's say, a, a prior inaccurate or incorrect understanding of something when then somebody's applying that learning to a new thing that they're encountering and they're confused because this doesn't jive with what they've learned before. I mean, how do you kind of, I guess you have to get to a point of of recognizing and, and then we're back to those things you mentioned a few moments ago about unlearning something that's um, mm-hmm. maybe- Precisely, accurate. yeah. It may, be, it may be even accurate, mm-hmm. but if it's prior, I'll be confused if I'm trying to match what's happening now yeah. to something in the past, as opposed to letting myself uh, suspend judgment long enough until the new pattern can emerge. Yeah. I'm trying to fit it into what I know already, whether it's accurate or not. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to be confused if it doesn't fit. Heiderolf mm-hmm. called it learning to be comfortable walking on shifting sands. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that she'd say often to her students as they go, wait a minute, this doesn't fit with yeah. what traditional, you know, kinesiology says. She says, well, you got to learn how to be comfortable walking on the shifting territories. Maybe these things aren't quite as fixed as we think. Can you still get, make your way across the sand dunes? Yeah, that's good. I like that. Another obstacle, and this is uh, one of my personal favorites, is an unwillingness to admit that I don't know. An unwillingness to admit that I don't know. And this comes with a lot of baggage for most of us, at least for me, because our educational system, our traditional one at least really emphasizes knowing. I mean, we test on what you know, raise your hand if you know, who knows the answer. And so that as a student, you know, a lot of us really competed to know or to be the first one that knew. And that certainly was me. And so what got valued was knowing. Yeah. Uh, there was not as much value in not knowing. And do you think that, I mean, I was talking with another um educator about this this past weekend over in Costa Rica when we were down there about the, especially with adult learners, there's, uh-huh. you know, you, you go into a, you know, let's say a continuing education course or even your your entry level basic training programs. There's, there's a lot more um, inhibition, I think, of people talking out and, you know, um, posing their opinions, their ideas when they think they're going to be Maybe, oh, yeah. um, you know, looked down upon or, or you know, they they don't feel comfortable knowing things. And this is especially true, I think, so often when you have, like in the continuing education realm, you'll have people who are in your course who are just out of school and people who've been in practice for 25 years and in the right. same room supposedly learning That's the same right. thing. So 
I think that's an inhibition for a lot of people to to open up both, and say things. That's right. On both sides of that spectrum, the, the newbies are going, oh my God, I don't know anything. Yeah. The people who are doing it for 25 years says, wow, am I really out of date? I don't know. But there's that yeah. we can work that in any particular way to feel that is, you know, we're basically unwilling to admit that we might not know. Yeah. We're in that place of just like, oh geez, who, I have no idea. Yep. You know? Or as Voltaire says, a doubt is an uncomfortable position. There's a kind of vulnerability in that. Mm -hmm. But Voltaire also said, certainty is a ridiculous position. Uh -huh. Yeah. So that the certainty we get of, yeah, I got that. I know this. I'm so sure about this is basically also an obstacle mm -hmm. to learning something new. Yeah. Buckminster Fuller, who was a big influence in my field, and Ida Rolf, and the idea of tensegrity came from him. He says, there's basically uh, an attitude you need to have as a learner, and that is to dare to be naive, he called it. Uh, the courage or the audacity to be naive. Yeah. And that's kind of back to what we were just talking about a moment ago, too, is that, you know, we, and I'll just speak, you know, as educators, one of the things that I find is to be very important is to create a safe space for people to to be okay with that place of not knowing. And that's some, sometimes not created real wealth for, for a lot of the classroom spaces that people are in. That's true. And for our clients. It's sometimes our clients will come in feeling like they need to know what's going on and to know the answers and you do it right or whatever it is. And yeah. creating that safety for them not to even know what they're feeling. Yeah. We'll ask them a question. What do you feel? They don't know how to answer that. That can be a difficult moment for our clients as well. Yeah. But you know, that's it. As a teacher, that's our first job. I see it. My first job is to help people feel comfortable. Yeah. In unknown place. Yeah. And on the flip side, too, I was reading this. This was on a, I think a website that was um, about patient advocates saying that it's a completely new uh, environment and situation in 21st century healthcare where patients may often go see their health professional armed with a wealth of information they got off the internet or wherever else. And yeah. sometimes if it's something possibly unusual, they're coming in and they know way more about this than you might as the practitioner. And so we have to, you know, be okay being in that place of saying, you know, uh, well, I don't know how, tell me what you, what you've learned or what you're knowing about here. So even as the practitioner. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Another one, not making learning a priority, not making learning or the practice of our learning a priority, like uh, just prioritizing other things in life besides the learning, burning the candle at both ends, staying too busy, going on to the next thing without giving it giving yourself time to integrate, practice, feel into what you got. I mean, that's the continuing education junkie syndrome where you go from workshop right. to workshop. Yeah. Don't uh, make the time to actually use and absorb and practice what you're learning, Yeah, for example. Or on the other end, just staying so busy with the rest of what it takes to have a life that there's no space anywhere mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. Never mind going to a lot of workshops. I'll throw a little scorecard in the handout too. This is, you can just do it as you listen here as well. Just think for yourself for a second, how many times in the in the past year did you participate in professional continuing education? How many times in the last year did you do some kind of continuing education? Just think of a number. How many times in the past year did you research a client's condition where you actually had a client come in or hear about a client where you actually go online or you look up one of Whitney's courses? Or you go pull out your massage and bodywork magazine and actually research a condition. How many times in the past year would you estimate another number? 
how many times did you ask questions about a client or a condition from peers or supervisor? That kind of counts as research, but it's a little different when you're asking a real person to, because then you can have a conversation. Yeah. How many times in the past year did you seek professional care for yourself? That's a learning experience for us as practitioners, whether we're going to another body worker but or even a dentist, for example. We learn things. I always learn something from going to other professionals about how they manage the conversation, about how they construct the interaction, about the expectations they set. Really amazing and useful things. Yeah. That's a learning experience. How many times in the last year did you talk shop with other practitioners? So these, these questions I'm asking how many times, they're all things that basically give you a sense of how much you prioritize learning mm -hmm. or not. This is one of those that in terms of that talking shop with other practitioners that, yeah. you know, as much as we like to bash things like social media, this is certainly one of those places where I think it has been a tremendous value for people to be able to connect with other practitioners. I just, you know, remark yeah. myself about, you know, reading a lot of the massage and bodywork forums and reading that, you know, the some of the stories that people tell of yeah. things that happen to them in the treatment room that we're just like, oh my gosh, you know, this is just so out of my realm of even thinking something like that would ever happen. But, you know, in the olden days, we didn't have the opportunity to hear a lot of those things and learn from them and figure out like, how would I have dealt with this? You know, how would I, what would I do? And this is, I think, a great value for that. You're right. That's one of the amazing things that social media, for example, brings to us. Yeah. But there's also uh, the other the other number I was going to ask about was taking in a work-related article, book, or podcast. So you get to at least mark one because you're listening to us today. There you go. But right. yeah, how many times in the last year did you uh, read a work-related article or listen to another podcast and mm -hmm. like that? So if you got the scorecard, you could total those up and uh, you know talk about your score, think about your score. But the basic question is. Are you satisfied with your answers in each one of those places? Well, it, it, maybe it's maybe it's the uh, constructive use of guilt or conscience or yeah. the the wanting something to be better. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be said for accepting things as they are, but the, uh, the question here is like, are you happy with those answers or is there something else you could do yeah. to shift those priorities for yourself? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, back to the top 10 uh, learning obstacles. Next one, trivializing. Trivializing, basically not taking advantage of the opportunities that you're in by discounting them. And it could be saying, like I did before, this is really cliche. It could be like, well, this is just going to be on the test. It could be saying, uh, you know, I'm not going to use this. It could be saying, this, you know, this is uh, this teacher hasn't been teaching as many years as I do, as many years I have, so I don't need to listen. Whatever you do inside yourself that trivializes the opportunity you have in front of you is an obstacle to learning, basically. Another one, having to get it right. Having to get it right. That's a big one, it, yeah. That gets, that's a big one. It gets in our way of getting it anyway at all sometimes mm -hmm. if we think we got to get it right. And there's the example of flying an airplane. You want to get that right. Yeah. And that's the learning you do for that kind of skill is, is important to get that right. And so there's lots of ways to practice that where your mistakes aren't going to have a big consequence. But in most things in life, the only way you learn is by not getting it right. Yeah. By trying it different ways and self-correcting or getting input by doing it a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, again, I, I 
kind of keep going back to this and and but it is relevant i think in in talking about this this is something i've had discussions with lots of educators over the years about one of the things that i think is really uh, an outstanding benefit potential benefit of of a lot of the online education models is it really decreases a lot of the inhibition that people have about having to get things right publicly like we were talking about the the fear or or inhibition that people feel in the classroom environment about saying things or jumping in and or making mistakes in front of their peers publicly, yeah. uh, the ability to make those kinds of mistakes and learn from them um, in a more private environment for adult learners, I think, is a really been a, a significant benefit for for people when they're doing those kinds of things. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, we do we do that in our small groups uh, in our online learning, but we also you know, have our private Facebook forums where we discuss the work and hopefully the idea being that privacy at least helps people feel like there's a little bit of safety around them just saying whatever they need to say. Yeah. But you're right, though, that can be a huge barrier to even sharing in a group or on social media or post whatever's how they get it right. Yeah. But as, uh, again, Mickley Connolly says, the return on investment on failure, the only hope for getting anything out of failure, in other words, is learning. Mm-hmm. Learning is the only thing that makes something we consider a failure to be worth it. Yeah. And there's a picture here where somebody was trying to pull a boat and it fell off their trailer. Hopefully there was some return on investment. Somebody will learn something from that. Yeah. All right. Uh, this one is tricky. The inability to grant the necessary authority to a teacher. The inability to grant the necessary authority to a teacher. That can get in the way of us learning. Tell me about that one. That's interesting. Well, we have in our American individualistic culture a lot of value on our own authority. And most of our psychological models are about individuation and following what's right for me and finding getting in touch with what is my way. Mm-hmm. And there's so much value for that. That gives rise to all sorts of empowerment if you have those options. It gives rise to all sorts of innovation, creativity, alignment with yourself. What we don't learn, and this gets really obvious to me going back and forth across different cultures, what we don't learn so well as Americans is how to give over authority to somebody who might know more than us. Yeah. We're basically all cowboys and, you know, we're all, at least, you know, I won't speak for anybody else. A lot of us think we're cowboys and think we're Clint Eastwood and you can just do it our way and be the loner all through our learning career also. Mm-hmm. Or we have authority issues, rightly so, because there's so much abuse of authority, especially in the education system, where we really felt like our some of our middle school teachers were Hitler, yeah, or Mussolini, something like that. We we really were concentration camp mm-hmm. survivors. I mean, just to, to, not to trivialize that at all, but to say that's that was really the kind of reaction we we're having to authority at that age. And if you've been in any situation where there's been an abuse of power, either subtly or overtly then it's going to be pretty uh, dicey to trust that someone else uh, has something to offer you. Yeah. And even uh, listen to what they have to say. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question here and, and kind of um, riff on this for just a second, because there seems to be also, I think sometimes a flip side to this of excessive mm-hmm. granting of authority to... Uh-huh individuals and and maybe not questioning that authority appropriately that is also an yeah. obstacle or impairment to learning because we think oh because the person standing up in front of the room said this it must be true um 
and yes. our, our inability or discomfort with the idea of questioning authority. I think you know, that's, that's kind of like a flip side obstacle that may happen sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Unquestioning acceptance of whatever we say just because uh, Whitney and Tilth had on a podcast, for example. Yeah. Because somebody in authority has has that statement. So no, that's true. That's the that's the converse. Mm-hmm. I think as a culture, we're much more attuned to be suspicious of that. Yeah. We don't really as much, but it's so that's why I included this one. This has been my own uh, challenge, of course, too, is to give over authority to somebody mm-hmm. else, to a teacher, and not just not always be looking at them with the skeptical, resistant, suspicious eye, like they're going to take me somewhere I don't want to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another one: forgetting that learning happens in the body. We could say everything happens in the body, mm-hmm. but learning is another one. There's lots of research that shows that people that can uh, participate with their bodies in learning remember more, get a better understanding, can apply it better, even if it's just conceptual information. So what would that look like? Tell me about like how, what does learning in the body look like for maybe, I mean, it's obvious to, to, to see what that looks like for, you know, learning a new treatment yeah. technique or something we're doing. But what about like, like you mentioned, conceptual models and things like that? What does that look like for learning happening in the body? Yeah. Well, a, a treatment, yeah, a, a technique is obvious. You're not, you're going to learn more if you can do it with your body than if you're just going to sure. watch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then a way to actually to uh, stay comfortable in your body, to actually connect what you're learning to movement, movement to stay fresh is one thing. I mean, certainly, literally just standing up and learning something, you're going to learn it differently than sitting in a classic school desk with a molded plastic chair mm-hmm. and metal legs that you're fixed in a certain position. Mm-hmm. So being able to adapt and respond in your body is just going to help you mentally process things. It's like Feldenkrais' idea that has been borne out by neurological research. There, He said there was no cognitive activity without a motor correlate. And his example was subvocalizing. And sure enough, almost nobody can read without some sort of motor activity in their throat and tongue. Really? Huh. Yeah. It's, like, it's almost, yeah, it, it's subtle for many of us. We don't realize it, but if you put a machine up to it, you can detect it. We all are doing something with our body, even when we're thinking. Mm-hmm. Even thought is a motor activity from that point of view. And then from what we know about retrieval of prior learning, uh-huh. then uh-huh. if my understanding is correct about that, many times we want to try to be able to reproduce the motor activity that was present when the learning occurred to retrieve that learning sure. uh, that whenever possible, right? State-dependent or motor-dependent kind yeah. of retrieval make a lot of sense. So learning the technique while you're doing it, for example, in the in the context was the obvious way to do it, but also uh, probably mocking things up in a way that you can remember and your body, let your body remember what you know. Yeah. Right. You have those terms like muscle memory and things like that. Musicians know a lot about that. Athletes know a lot about that. Yeah. It's true for our our physical disciplines as well. Yeah. <laughs> Just recalling um, a conversation I had with some of my college classmates when they were staying out way too late, partying and drinking excessively on a night before an exam and, and you know, when they should have been studying and, and saying like, well, you know, <laughs> if you're getting seriously inebriated the night before when you're studying and trying to read this stuff, that doesn't necessarily then translate into like, you should go in and take that exam while you're really wasted also. Not so much state-dependent retrieval in that case. Right. Right. But we could say, I mean, not well, in a classroom, we want people and we want ourselves, if we're a student, 
to basically be chill about it, to be relaxed, to be in a state of of receptivity and openness so that we can take information and then use it yeah. and retrieve it. Right. Something like what we want to work in too, the state of autonomic calm that we want to work in. Yeah. So that's that's the next obstacle too. Is like there's a bunch of body mind states that are not conducive to learning, like embarrassment is one of those. We talked about that. The shaming that can happen in mm-hmm. different educational processes of no, not knowing, but also alarm, also maybe inebriation or hangover, like you said, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, or extreme boredom or restlessness. And there's a reason that so many kids that got to move get classified as having attention issues yeah because uh they're you know we don't we're not really good in the conventional education system of letting people process in their body we insist that they find a body mind state that is essentially cognitive focused and still yeah there's only one possible yeah. thing on the whole continuum of possibilities yeah the um uh this story comes from, have you seen the um ted talk episode with ken robinson about how schools kill creativity. No. It, um, we'll probably put a plug for this in the show notes. It's a wonderful yeah. talk. But in there, he talks about this very issue by describing the exper- the school experience of Jillian Lynn, who was the choreographer of Cats and just numerous Broadway musicals and just uh, essentially telling the story of how she was in school and just doing very poorly and having a very hard time in school and her yeah. you know, mom took her to the principal and the principal, who was someone who had a fair amount of insight, apparently, luckily for her, uh, eventually ended up saying to her mom, there is nothing wrong with your daughter. The problem is she's a dancer and awesome. she needs to get out of the school and go to a dance school because that's what she needs to be doing. You know, that's where her learning is going to happen and everything. It's just, it's a wonderful story. And I would encourage uh, everybody to take, take a listen at that, that TED Talk. Yeah. Ken Robinson. Was- yeah. That was, okay, we'll put that in the show notes. That was my story. I wasn't a dancer, yeah. but I was not a kid who was happy in a classroom. Uh-huh. And I was lucky enough to have had teachers and parents and different people that gave me opportunities just to learn by doing. Yeah. So that was really my story as well. Because uh, openness and curiosity, that like the precursors of learning, are themselves body-mind states. Mm-hmm. The ability to learn is a precondition it's preconditioned by the state that we're in in our body. Yeah. If we're alarmed, if we're shut down, if we're tired, if we're, uh, comp- you know, fearing of being uh, bullied, whatever it is, we're not going to learn as much. Well, I'm trying to make an adult. I'm going back to my school days for these examples. Yeah. If we think we're going to be harshly graded mm-hmm. in a education, yeah, thing, or if we're going to be overwhelmed with information, or all the things that get in the way, if we had to like stress about getting to class, like getting ready for this podcast, the computer not working, you know, we're just, whatever it is, if we come into that situation in a stress state, we're not going to learn as much. Yeah. Body state yeah. that doesn't predispose us to learning. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And some of those are really challenging. Some of those places to, to have the self-reflection, um, to be aware of where we are and what, what those things are doing for us. I think that's, that is a challenge for so many people. You're talking about the self-awareness to understand if I'm in an open place or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But so it's, there's a little uh, exercise I thought I'd end on. That's my list, basically. Yeah. I like that. But there's an exercise we could try where if you uh, 
shift your you know listeners, viewers of the video, whatever else, shift your body toward more openness than you're now. Open something somehow. Maybe it's your breath. Maybe you take a deeper breath. Maybe you relax your body, let some tension go. Maybe you soften your eyes. Maybe you soften your jaw. Maybe you relax your face. Yeah. Maybe you relax your ears if you're listening. But if you just do that, if you just take a second and feel that openness or relaxation in your body, that's going to allow a whole different sort of experience of listening or watching or taking in information as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's all there is to it, that the basic exercise. That's the body-mind uh, precondition that you need for learning. It's just opening something. And I think, you know, a lot of those, um, we talked earlier about, you know, sometimes the like you were speaking about the you know the hard chairs and the desks and all that kind of stuff that's yeah. present in a lot of the formal education environments aren't terribly conducive to that sometimes and it's um, that's one of the things that I've found to be both unique and fascinating and, and helpful in some of the things in in that were done in massage education at least in my training at the time we did it which allowed people to move their bodies around to stand up to get up you know to sit on the floor to stretch out, to do, to be in different positions, to be receptive to what was going on. And, and there was a, uh, acceptance of that, acceptance and openness to um, for people to be able to do some of those kinds of things. And so- That's uh, true. Yeah. It, this, it, it, it's long been a field where lots of experimentation around experiential learning is makes sense because that's what we were teaching, a physical thing. Yeah. In creative, creative environments. I, I traveled and did teacher trainings for a couple decades early on, and it was really, really fun. And there was such talented teachers in different massage schools around the country too, mm -hmm. already doing amazing things. I learned so much every time I'd go into a school yeah. and help start those conversations of how are we teaching this stuff yeah. in this situation. Right. I know you've done a lot of that as well too, so. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing those. Those were wonderful. Uh, and I took away uh, some good things there that I want to kind of go back and take that scorecard and sort of look at some things of, of what I'm doing and, and uh, find some better ways to to uh, bring openness to, to to those learning experiences for myself, too. That's it. That Yeah, the scorecard, I'll put that on the, uh, the show notes again. It just helps you mm -hmm. rate yourself in different areas and ask where could I be more open or be more easy around this whole question. Yeah. Cool. So, what else, Whitney? Anything else you want to throw in our mix here? Yeah, I think that's a that's a nice overview of some of those things for for people to keep in mind as they're looking at you know just reemphasizing that learning has to be uh, a constant, ever happening process for us in order to both grow professionally and keep ourselves interested in the things that we're doing. I think that is so crucial for all of us, and and the more we can kind of know and understand about how to do it right and to do it well. It'll make those experiences so much better for everybody. So uh, thank nice. you again so much for sharing those. That's a great list. And to make it congruent with what we're asking from the other person's body yeah. in that situation. We can find that in ourselves, that openness, that relaxation, that adaptability yeah. in our own bodies, our own imaginations, then we end up learning a whole lot more yeah. about this and everything else. Time for our rollout? Yeah, we can roll it out from here, I think. The Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, quick reference apps, online scheduling and payments with PocketSuite, and much more.
And do remember ABMP's CE courses, their podcast and massage and bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including yourself and uh, me as well. And thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. And today's show is also sponsored by the Academy of Clinical Massage, where our mission is to help you become a better practitioner working with pain and injury conditions. And uh, you know it's challenging, and we do too, to find high-quality training in your location when you need it. And we try to bring you exceptional orthopedic massage training to the comfort of your home through our innovative online programs so you can learn anytime, anywhere, and immediately help more of your clients. So this year, we're completely revising all of our online orthopedic massage programs, and you can learn more about these at academyofclinicalmassage.com. I look forward to checking that out. I know you've been working hard on it. Yeah, still going, still chugging away at it. So yeah, we're going to get there. Yeah, so. And we would like to say thank you to all of our listeners who've uh, hung out with us today and do hang out with us frequently. And thanks again to also our sponsors. You can stop by our sh- our sites for the uh, video, show notes, transcripts, and any extras over there. Um, that uh, Those resources, you can find them over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can they find that with you? Advanced trainings.com. If there are questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about, you can email us, or you can also just read your question into a voice memo on your phone and email us the memo, and maybe we'll even play it on the air. That'd be kind of fun. Oh, yeah, right. The the email is info at thethinkingpractitioner.com, or look for us on social media under our names. My name is Till Luca. Yours? Uh, Today, my name will be Whitney Lowe, and you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you will, that does help other people find the show, and you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, or wherever else you do happen to listen, your own favorite podcast app of choice. So, as usual, please do share the word, tell a friend. Thanks for being with us today. Till great to, to be with you. Thanks for that list of uh, fascinating learning obstacles that we're working with, and uh, we will pick it up here again soon. Thanks, Whitney. See you later. Okay, see ya.